Hello and welcome back to The Bunker, the politics podcast that self-isolates from Brexit. Brought to you by the makers of Romaniacs. I'm Andrew Harrison and in the week the coronavirus sent the world economy into a nosedive, we will do our best to keep your minds off it. This week, the Labour leadership contest is looking more and more like a done deal as the party finally turned the corner and what will Keir Starmer need to prioritise during the party's five coming years out in the cold. What the hell's going on in France? We have an actual French voice with us to explain the political tumult amongst our nearest and dearest neighbours. And, because why not, the future of football. Could the end of an age of corruption and mega-spending be about to change the world's favourite game? All this and more in this week's edition of The Bunker. Before we start, here's your quick reminder that the first ever live pod clash between The Bunker and Romaniacs is in London on Thursday the 2nd of April. I'm doing The Bunker half of the show with Ahir Shah and Roz Taylor. The panel for The Romaniacs half is Dorian Linsky, Ian Dunst and Naomi Smith. And special guests will be announced very soon. Get your tickets now at leicestersquaretheatre.com. We've got a splendid panel today with all three of our guests making their Bunker FC debuts. Firstly, we have former Labour MEP for the East Midlands and Keir Starmer backer, Rory Palmer. Hello, Rory. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. We said we weren't going to mention Brexit in first question and here we are. What have you been up to since January the 31st? Unwinding? Unwinding a little bit, uh, sorting out my office, staying in touch with a lot of colleagues in Brussels. Actually, the 31st was clearly a very difficult day for many of us. Uh, that last week in the European Parliament was a very, very emotional time. Uh, there's no point in me pretending otherwise. There's plenty of pictures to, to show just how emotional I and other colleagues were. So yeah, just in the process of moving on from that at the moment, doing a bit of writing about it, a few podcasts about it <laughs> here and there, uh, and figuring out what to do next. All right. Also with us today, freelance political journalist, one of Forbes 30 Under 30 for 2018, and author of the merciless dissection of Westminster's gossip culture, Haven't You Heard? It's Marie Leconte. Hello, Marie. How are you hey. doing? Uh, I'm all good, thank you. I'm glad to hear it. Your book provides a fascinating insight into how gossip travels around Westminster, some would say virally. Has the change in the dominant party culture changed the kind of quality and nature of that gossip? Gossip, Because they're a lot more controlling, aren't they, the new regime? Unforgiving. I I just find it quite funny how, you know, sort of like Dominic Cummings came in and everyone was like, ooh, Dominic Cummings, you know, he's so clever, but so mysterious, he's going to change everything. And, you know, everyone kind of clinging onto his every word and taking him at face value. But... I've, I, you know, I've not really seen it to be the case, you know, the, the kind of like new information regime that like I still see, like special advisors socially. I still talk to MPs if I need to talk to them. You know, I don't think any, any of that's changed. But I do think that I think what's gossiped about has maybe changed a bit because obviously, you know, when we didn't have a majority, every, you know, every faction of every party mattered. And as a result, I think, you know, because actually there's always going to be more gossip about where the power lies. Um, and so as a result, you know, everything was gossiped about and, ev- and everything was gossip in a way as well because normally we think of gossip, we think of, you know, salacious stories or, you know, stuff like, you know, shagging stories, etc. Whereas in that case, it's very much, oh, we know, like, it was, you know, who's launching a centrist party, who's about to maybe join <laughs> All the, the red hot stuff. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. And actually, you know, and, and as a result, I think very few of that other stuff. So I think that actually my prediction will be that, because um, I've been asked a few times, you know, like, to speculate on the future of gossip in the, in the Boris years. And I think, you know, we're going to have a return, an encore of kind of, um, you know, Tory sleaze stories. I, I think we're going to have a bit of a major vibe to, you know, Tory MPs doing weird sex stuff. Um, the 80s are back, the 80s revival. I think, yeah, I think so. Because, you know, because actually the Labour Party, as we're about to talk about, is not really going to matter for quite a few years now. 
Um, and so people, you know, are, are unlikely to massively, massively care about what goes on there. And then in terms of the Tories as well, you know, their benches are so large that I don't think, you know, you know the, the bar is going to be so high in terms of what counts as interesting information uh, for rebellions. It's like, oh, well, you know, turns out 20 Tory MPs don't like that thing. Okay, fine. So you know, the whips, yeah. you know, exactly. You know, the whips can still sleep soundly. Um, with that knowledge. So, so yeah, I think it'll probably turn more to the personal stuff. Isn't it not the case, though, that we have a Prime Minister who produces far more of this stuff than the country can possibly consume? And the idea of a, a, the member for Whitney Houston getting his leg over somewhere is not necessarily going to be, uh, you know, hot news when Boris Johnson is sprinkling children all over the country like confetti. Well, that's a leading question, isn't it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, clearly we're going to have the uh, the Brexit baby over the summer. Looking forward to that. <laughs> um, but I don't know, because I think that, again, you know, what, what makes interesting gossip is it, it has to be unexpected to an extent, effectively. Mm. So I think, you know, again, yeah, like Boris Johnson, you know, some stories about Boris Johnson aren't ever going to be that interesting because there's so many stories. But I think that especially when you look actually at some of the Conservative MPs who were elected in December 2019, um, you know, and as happens with any party that has a landslide, quite a lot of those candidates were clearly never meant to come in. And central office <laughs> never meant for them to become MPs. Mm. I can think of one I'm not going to name who was purposely put in the seat he was because there was no chance he was going to win. Um, and then he did. Uh, <laughs> so I think that all of those all of those new faces, I'm excited to find out more about them. So this is the Conservative Party as the producers. It was never meant to be a hit. <laughs> and yet it made a fortune. It's, Effectively, yeah. Moving on from the gossipy stuff to the rather more serious things, the, the, the pretty Patel scandal is prime government rocking stuff, isn't it? Do you think there's, you know, from your rarefied position on the inside, is there more to come out on that bullying stuff? Um, I generally have no idea. I'm happy to put my hands up mm. and say that I'm not sure. But I am finding actually the whole thing quite fascinating because normally, you know, because people are wondering why she hasn't resigned yet. But I think the major difference when you compare this government to Theresa May's government, David Cameron's, and then even before that, Blair and Brown, etc., is that Boris and Dominic Cummings are relishing in the idea of having a fight, like picking a fight with the media. So it's not a case of, you know, the papers can just run story after story, like front page after front page after front page on the topic and convince the government to say, OK, fine, 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 you know, we'll sack that person. We would also be joined right now by the eminent football journalist, card-carrying French person and former L Records recording artist of indie pop, Philippe Auclair. Except, funny story, his train from Glasgow to London went on fire. Don't worry, he's OK. He's going to be joining us later to fly solo on the subject of the fate of world football. The never-ending Labour leadership contest continues to roll on with over three weeks still to go. But Keir Starmer is the overwhelming favourite, having led in every category so far, MPs, unions and local parties. Some bookies have already paid out on him winning the contest. His nearest challenger, Rebecca Long-Bailey, is now 14-1 to outsider, with Lisa Nandy even further behind. And the deputy leadership contest is also seen as something of a foregone conclusion, with Angela Rayner in pole position to become second in command. But what would a Starmer-Rayner team mean for the future of the party? Would it be a viable alternative to the Conservatives? Roy, we're going to start with you. You're backing Keir Starmer. Two more Labour heavy hitters, Gordon Brown and the Mayor of London City, Khan, as well as most of the PLP are behind him. Are his strong poll ratings amongst members a sign that the party is about to turn the corner? Oh, I hope so. Yeah. Uh, and I hope Keir wins really well, because clearly the bigger the margin of victory, the more room for manoeuvre there is in starting to reshape things and remould things in his making. Uh, and I think that's really, really important because many of us have backed Keir, have supported him for different reasons. But I do believe, I do believe he can take the Labour Party in uh, the direction I believe it needs to head in. And there'll be a debate around what that means in, in policy terms. 
you know, should everything from the last manifesto be junked? No, of course it shouldn't. There was some really good stuff in there. There was just so much of it. Mm. Uh, and we got to the point where we we're promising people things they didn't even know they wanted, uh, free broadband and, and all that sort of stuff. But actually, my sort of, the big thing I'm so looking forward to, and I really hope it happens and I'm confident it will under a new leadership, is just a return to convincing competency. Mm. Because actually, the last few years have not just been difficult politically. You know, I accept that Jeremy Corbyn won two leadership elections, but actually it hasn't just been the fact that Pike went in a different political direction as a result of democratic votes of the membership. I can accept that. What's been more difficult for a lot of us has just been the things going wrong that shouldn't go wrong, that have just created endless problems, the handling of, of complaints. Uh, the, the European election campaign, which I was clearly part of last year, was not the Labour Party's best campaign in the world ever, let's say. So I just want to return to, uh, I guess, just a better way of doing things. So he's done a lot of kind of, there's, there's been a lot of nice noises made mm. towards the, uh, the kind of the existing left, the left that's been running the party for the past five years. You're out, you're not an MEP anymore. You can speak as you find. Is he being straight there or is this a case of box it off until you've got that mandate and that ability then to make radical changes inside the party? No, I don't think it's a, it will be that blunt, and nor should it, because actually, if Keir does become leader, and you know, we're talking as if he will win, there's still you know a few weeks of a ballot, and let's not take anything for granted. The fact that so many people have come into the Labour Party these past few years with enthusiasm and have you know got involved in campaign, that's a good thing. We need to find a way to harness that in a different way. I would harness it in a different way, and I hope Keir will. Uh, I think look that the key the key decisions or the new leadership will be around you know, personnel decisions. Who's in the shadow cabinet still in a few weeks' time and, and who isn't? That will be the real test of, of how fast things move and how dramatic a change this might be. But I think the tone that Keir has adopted through this leadership race and his approach to genuinely trying to be unifying and keeping people together has been the right one. You know, we took an absolute hammering in December, but at the same time, the party could have been in a much, much worse state following the result in December. And I actually think it's the way the leadership candidates, not just Keir, but other candidates, have gone into this contest, I think with a genuine determination to have a thorough, robust debate about the future, but in a way that doesn't completely trash the party and, and gives the, the new leader an impossible job in their first year. Marie, what's been your take on uh, Keir's progress? Well, I feel like, you know, I, I can't start without pointing out that it is incredibly disheartening for the Labour Party to yet again almost certainly end a race with no woman above a man. Mm. Um, you know, in the race, no, no, so literally, you know, a woman, it's not just that a woman has never been leader of the Labour Party, is that a woman has never pulled above a man in any of the leadership contests. But that being said, I think, you know, Keir, as far as I can tell, has probably made the best pitch to the membership. I think Lisa and Andy has fallen into a bit of a Liz Kendall problem of, you know, I think her critique of the Labour Party are actually really astute um, and really interesting and I think worth saying, but equally, especially during a leadership contest when the people you're talking to are not the electorate at large, mm. they're just the selectorate of the members of the Labour Party, you do kind of need to tell them to an extent what they want to hear. You know, that that, that is how you it works. you show them a bit of love as well as... Well, yes, no, exactly. It was, you know, like Lisa, there's a bit of a risk, I think, of the kind of like doom and gloom um, factor engulfing her. Then, I mean, Becky Long-Bailey, I didn't really have that much to say about her. Like, I think the most telling thing maybe is that I only... So obviously, despite, you know, 
writing about politics full time um, and really caring about, you know, politics mm. and what goes on, etc. I think it took me until about last month to be able to remember what she sounded like, like what her voice sounded like. It was a case of despite having heard it many times, it just dropped out of my brain each time. Um, but then as a wider point, I think looking forward, um, what I would say in a, in a weirdly slight defence of Corbyn and actually um, Ed Miliband to an extent as well is that I think after every, especially long period of uh, a party being in government, a party needs to basically be in disarray, needs to be a mess for a few years. And it's, it's the breakup theory. You're just like, you really do need to reach, you know, the bottom. Do you um, think that the to... Labour Party needs to be sitting under a duvet with a load of ice cream for a so, while? Yes, it does. Or do the thing and be like, I'm fine, I'm fine, let's do shots. Yes, it's 4pm. <laughs> um, but basically, but it's not really been allowed to do that because, you know, because the coalition of um, 2010-2015 kind of made it look like, you know, the um, the next election was within Labour's grasp, you know, just one more heave, one more mm-hmm. heave, and then we can make it up so that didn't happen. Then the Cameron government had the tiniest majorities and was very short-lived anyway. Then, you know, obviously there was the Brexit chaos, then there was an overall majority, so obviously it was this idea of, you know, just one more push, one more push, Labour can come back into government. That's no longer the case. The Tories can do basically whatever they want for five years, and actually I think that's probably good for Labour because, you know, it, it gives the party time to lick its wounds and then to be like okay what do we want to do let's actually you know let's actually rebuild ourselves rebuild ourselves sorry um for the next few years do you think that um within the conservative party they are thinking about what a starmer led labor party can do to them or are they just thinking no well you know you elect your guy doesn't really matter majority of what is it 87 i heard varying things at the start of this process uh and one of the things you heard quite a lot in terms of how the Tories were thinking about this, was that the candidate they feared the most was Jess Phillips. And I suspect some of them did. But I also heard a lot of Tories saying the one they really feared was Keir uh, because of his, probably his, you know, his, the forensic pro- approach he, he, he adopts at the, the dispatch boxes. I think he has a real command of the House. Uh, I think Keir will give really, really strong performances in that arena. I think the Tories will, will worry about that against the contrast of Johnson's sort of you know, Johnson's style, which is, you know, not necessarily one that gives confidence in that. But but just in terms of th- this this question about whether the Labour Party, you know, what's the relevance of the Labour Party for the next few years? Can we just go away and rebuild quietly off the pitch? Well, look, I mean, I that depends how you define the journey of recovery. And if you look at this from a solely Westminster sort of point of view, then yes, you can make that argument. But actually, if I if I think about my colleagues in local government, there's really important elections this May. There's Metro Mayor elections, there's the London elections, there's council elections, there's Scottish and Welsh elections next year. There's then local elections in 2022 and 2023. They are all really important sort of milestones on Labour's recovery. Each of those contests will matter because the new leadership will be measured. So the road back in Westminster is actually full of really important junctions around the country. And we've lost councillors in in successive sets of local elections. A party in opposition should not do that. Mm. If you look at you look through, back through history, parties at this, you know, in terms of this stage of the cycle, uh, a Tory government going into its 10th year in effect, a Labour opposition should not be losing seats in local government. So all of those contests coming these next few years really, really matter. What do we make of Lisa Nandy's comments uh, about the left leadership wanting to crush their opponents when they were on top of the game? McDonald said he didn't recognise this, but he didn't deny it. <laughs> I, I don't recognise it. 
it may be true, I don't know, but I don't recognise it. <laughs> yeah, and it felt like that at times, to be honest. It felt like that certainly at a local level sometimes. Yeah. You know, if you, you would go to meetings and local constituency meetings, which used to be just really, really friendly places, but that changed. That definitely changed post-2015 to, uh, you know, if you had the, the nerve to, to gently critique the project, the leadership, you would be you know, met with the, the, some of the most ferocious Red Tory stuff I've ever, yeah. I've ever experienced in 20 years in politics. And, you know, I know this, this is a cliche. The Labour Party is at its best when it's a broad church, and it is. And I've always subscribed to that because we actually are best when we draw on all those different political traditions that make up our movement. And if I just contrast these past few years with what went before, in the Blair years, you never got you never got the sort of organised campaigning going on to try to you know deselect Jeremy Corbyn or John McDonnell. It just didn't happen. No, they think they, they, those campaigns did not happen. So, so, sorry, they did not yeah, happen. For, for listeners at home, I was <laughs> making a face. Um, <laughs> and actually, I was making the other face, which was why didn't it happen? But it didn't. Okay, it's, it's, okay well, it didn't really happen under. Views. It didn't really happen under Blair because it happened under Kinnock. Would be my argument, but it didn't. There was, there was still in place, in place weren't they? They didn't really happen. Those those MPs were tolerated. And no, kept no, on no, board. They gave it a good go. You know, if you look at the fact that you know Kate Hoey, for example, was elected was selected as the MP for Vauxhall because the leader of the opposition. Um, so overall, I can't remember who was selected in like, at first, but basically overall, whoever had been selected to say no, like we just want our own moderate candidate because it was someone who was on the left. Like, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not picking <laughs> sides here. I'm just saying that, that whoever, whichever faction. <laughs> is normally in control of the Labour Party, yes. will, you know, will act like a faction, is my point. Some of them tried harder than others. This, 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 yeah. this has been different. There's been a, that, there has been in places uh, a, a distinct move away from, from that sort of that tolerance and that acceptance of, of different views and, and different perspectives on, on the way forward. And, and perhaps it's because, you know, we live in this sort of age of social media and, and that, that that whole sort of thing drives a very un, unhealthy climate mm. in places in terms of the way debates unfold and the manner in which debates unfold. And maybe that, you know, influences uh, and heightens the, the way some of those those exchanges feel. But it's, you know, for someone who's been in the Labour Party for 20 years, these past few years have felt very, very, very different to my first 10 years in the party. I can't believe that. I, I don't even like arguing, but, um, but <laughs> here I am uh, disagreeing. But, no, but I, I do kind of think that so as both as an outsider to the Labour Party and someone who does have contacts and acquaintances on all sides, I suppose, I do feel that, that there's kind of another side as well to it, which is that, you know, the second Corbyn got elected, obviously quite a lot of the Labour Party, you know, decided to not give him the benefit of the doubt and kind of started that war the second he got in. And, and I do, you know, and I completely agree. I've had many stories from people, you know, kind of very long-term members of the Labour Party who found that, you know, their CLP meetings had become hell post-Corbyn. But equally, I, I did hear from, you know, a few friends, especially quite young, who weren't that interested in politics before and then joined the Labour Party because of Corbyn, yada, yada. But then, you know, tried to go to their meetings and, you know, and got treated with incredible suspicion or were told, well, you know, if you've not been fucking door knocking, you know, for the past like, however many months, like, we don't care what you think. I mean, sorry, exaggerate slightly. But so, so I do think that, you know, it was it was war, but in the sense that both sides were at it. Yeah, and well, as I said earlier, the fact that so many people, particularly young people, came into the Labour Party were refused to do so, that's great. And we should absolutely harness that and, and encourage that and make sure all those people are welcome and stay part of things going forward and are, and are listened to and are you know, genuinely part of uh, the future. Uh, but you know, there are people now who, 
you know, even now cannot accept these past few years, uh, it, just at an electoral level, have been a failure for the Labour Party. They have, but we've won the argument, whatever the hell that means, so it's all okay. Well, luckily, it's come by our time now and everybody's going to be mates again. And I want to ask you just to wrap this bit, this bit up. What lines do you expect the Conservative Party to take against Starmer if and when he's the leader? What are his weak points? Uh, Ramona really. I can't really think of anything else. Mm. Um, Funny haircut, slightly strange voice, tiny bit boring. He's, oh yeah, I mean, he's very dull. Um, but I think even his supporters say so. And, you know, and I think it's maybe actually a wise choice to pick someone quite dull when Boris Johnson is the other yeah, option. I'm so sick because of interesting. So, well, no, exactly. Yeah, people only want exciting for so long. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons why he's sort of like the, the good kind of doll, I suppose, is that, yeah, that there's not really much to attack him on. Like, ooh, mm. like, what was it? Like, ooh, he says he loves going to the football with his sons, dweeb. Like, that's not going to work. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah. Is that what you think, Rory? Is that the line they're going to go on? Probably, yes. Uh, I would imagine so. I mean, look, is he dull? Uh, I don't think so. I've met him a few times, spent some time with him. Uh, he's a perfectly nice he's guy. He's passionate fellow, I mean, look, if, he, if, he's, you know, if he's dull, I mean, God knows what that makes me. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so to look, be fair, I would say that I only saw him speak once and it was at the Fabian's annual conference and no one can make that exciting. So maybe that was that. Well, as a member I've literally just come here from the Fabian Society. As a member of the Fabian Society Executive Committee, let me just make a very quick yeah. defence of the, the Fabians, the home of radi- radi- new radical solutions it's to take on the big of challenges. Rock of and, politics. and look, Keir Starmer's leadership is going to be exciting, it's, it's going to be successful, and it will not be dull. God, I tried to build a bridge there and just set it on fire wait, wait. instead. <laughs> We now take a short jaunt across the channel and head over to our beloved neighbours, France. With the UK exiting the EU stage left and Angela Merkel standing down as German Chancellor in 2021, Emmanuel Macron appears set to be the de facto leader of Europe. He has big ideas for reforming a post-Brexit Europe with greater integration and a defence of European values top of the agenda. But with Merkel a bit of a lame duck Chancellor and Berlin not willing to take difficult decisions, he is finding it difficult to push through the reforms he wants without Germany's help. And this goes alongside poor approval ratings at home with just 32% of the French population in favour of his leadership. And oh dear, a European recession is on on the cards. Thanks, coronavirus. So we were going to split this between uh, you, Marie, and Philippe Beauclair, but you're stuck on a burning train. Uh, so it's all on you, I'm afraid. Um, you'll be very familiar with British people who pay no attention to France. What is going on in French politics that we need to know about on this side of the channel? Give us the quick tour de raison, the main things. That's a big question. There's something I find interesting because it's not happening, if that makes sense. I'm slightly mm-hmm. cheating here. But it is the fact that, you know, we still do not really have a mainstream left-wing party or a mainstream right-wing party. Like, you know, years after the election, um, where obviously, you know, the left and the right, the um, traditional left and right both collapsed. The, you know, we, we all, I suppose, or at least some of us kind of assume that, you know, both parties kind of like slowly be rebuilding themselves. And that's still not really happening. So, you know, we're still stuck effectively. Because I, I hear from lots of British people who, as you say, you know, don't really follow... French politics, so we know that Macron, like he's toast, isn't he? Like he's mm. done, everyone hates him. It's like, well, you know, fair, fair. Quite a lot of people dislike him, but who else is there? You know, there is Marine Le Pen. Effectively, what's happening is, you know, and, and this is, you know, you guys had your own Grand Hawk Day uh, with the B word I will not name, but I think that ours in some way is the slow rise of Marine Le Pen mm. uh, because every electoral cycle basically. You know, she obviously doesn't win the presidency, but does, you know, a bit better each time and then, you know, goes to ground for a few years and then slowly comes back and goes up in the polls again. So we're kind of in that phase again. So, you know, we're getting lots of articles about how she's detoxifying, you know, her father's party. Well, (laughs) yes, but but actually, they're an interesting example, actually, of what 
the future of the far right, I think, will be like, at least mm. in Europe, if not elsewhere. Because, for example, like, you know, one of the things um, the National Front, or like, no, they're called the Rassemblement National now, which is very different. Um, you know, one of the things they're focusing <laughs> on is green issues. Um, and obviously that's not really, you know, what you'd expect from a far-right party. But actually... Well, there was quite a lot of green-brown in the 30s, wasn't there? Sort of ecological far-right wingery. That's the thing, yeah. Eco-Nazis, so, literally eco-Nazis. Yeah, yeah, eco-fascism mm. is obviously something that I think quite a lot of green campaigners have been warning against for quite a long time now. But it's finally happening with a mainstream uh, far-right party. And, and you know, and, and it was always going to happen because I think, you know, they can link it to local living, local communities and... <clears throat> closing the borders and, you know, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of happening. And then Macron, I don't know, I, I do feel like we're sort of stuck and we've, yeah, we've sort of been stuck in the same thing for quite a long time. In a time loop. Yes, it's kind of been a time loop, actually, yes, or like Tintin in the presidency. So Matteo Salvini described Macron as the new face of the old establishment. Are you it's effectively in a face-off between what the right would call elite values and this insurgency from Le Pen? I suppose so. I think, you know, and and as many people have pointed out before me, I think Macron is probably the first politician um, that I can think of, at least, who could rightly claim to be the heir to Blair in that, you know, he is doing the same sort of thing, you know, actually generally being a centrist. And I think that was bleakly funny to watch after the election, because I think Macron had the support internationally of quite a lot of centre-left people who said, oh, you know, but especially in the UK, like, he's just like Blair, he's just like... And actually, the one slight difference is that, you know, Blair was still the head of a of a centre-left party, whereas, you know, Macron has his own thing and he's just generally centrist. So, yeah, actually, I suppose mm-hmm. you could say that, you know, he's Macron is, is if anything, sort of like platonic ideal of Blair, so he's not even tied down by, you know, by saying the Labour Party or whatever. He's just, you know, bang in the centre and that's all he does. And, yeah, and so all those centre-left people are like, oh, turns out, you know, he's he's not left-wing. And it's like, well, he never pretended to be. The problem is that will help the far right because then Marine Le Pen can sell her party beyond, you know, the kind of, like, move beyond the moniker of far right by saying, actually, it's not about left or right anymore Mm. because, you know, because my main guy on the other side is not left or right either. And actually, you know, you see that lots of... So quite a few of uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon's supporters on the far left would support the National Front if he weren't around. So there's been quite a lot of polling around that. So, you know, we are kind of seeing a complete shifting axis of... Um, politics. So it's not actually that dissimilar to what we've seen here on the extremes, where the kind of the the the, the far right tries to present itself as some somehow uh, progressive and allied with the left, and kind of to do with uh, you know uh, working people's concerns and so forth. You know that the old the old horseshoe thing that the, re- the far left and far right right meet round the back. No, exactly. But also, I think it's part of a wider thing, and they they did do that um, with the last election as well. But of nearly so, trying to remodel, I suppose. Um, the far right package is no, no, no. You know, we're not, we're not that conservative. Like we like, and especially you know, in, in a very sort of like French way of like, you know, we like women being able to do whatever they want. We're broadly fine with gay people and so on. Oh, but no, the real problem is you know like those people coming in from different countries, especially from like you know third world countries. Like they're not liberals. Like they're the real threats to kind of you know to the republic and to the beautiful liberal ways of the republic. So vote for us, basically. And, We'll, you know, we'll make sure we'll kind of preserve your your liberal, you know, wonderful way of life and also give you lower taxes. It's illiberal liberalism. It is. It is. The other, I mean, bleakly funny thing, I suppose, is that obviously at the last election, they lent quite far towards uh, Euroscepticism. 
Um, that didn't quite work out for them. And then they kind of, you know, took a bit of a look um, at the other side of the pond, at the other side of the channel and decided against it. However, Marine Le Pen has started comparing herself to Boris Johnson um, in interviews. So that, that's something that you in guys are kind of flattering. Sorry? I, I wasn't aware that she was quite such a party lady. So it's a, <laughs> well, what was she comparing Well, I think is the kind of, you know, populist but trying to fight for the working man and the mm. real people and so on, which is in many ways, you know, that the platform Boris fought the election on um, late last year. But I think, yeah, she, she's trying to ride the Boris wave, which... I didn't quite see coming, I have to say, but there you go. I wasn't aware there was one. Um, English people and British people, as you know, only really pay attention to France when it's on fire. Are the gilets jaunes still a thing? No, but they've not been a thing for a very, very long time. It was immensely frustrating. So, so I think, you know, it was, to be clear, a massive, major thing that basically stopped nearly sort of like life in France's like main cities for several months. Like every Saturday you, you would have protests, you would have riots obviously everywhere. And you know, my parents and grandparents, etc., could basically not really leave the house. Um but it didn't last for that long. So admittedly, you know, the protests kept on for I can't remember the figure, but something like you know, seventy four Saturdays, let's say, in a row. But by the end, it was very, very, very few people. And obviously, you would still have some photographers going and would get some pictures of the, you know, literal 12 people trying to set stuff on fire. But but yeah, no, so it was in the interest of quite a lot of gloating Brits to go, well, see, you know, how can you talk about Brexit when you've got the gilets jaunes burning fronts down? And it's like, genuinely, we're quite used to riots and protests. This is nothing. <laughs> this is just, yeah, this is just... This is a Saturday. Rory, I want to bring you in for a second. Uh, we promised you wouldn't mention the B word, and Marie did very well avoiding it earlier. Uh, but Macron was often seen as the pessimist during the, the, the Brexit talks. You, you can't make this work. Now that we've left, what sort of a role do you think he has to play in the trade discussions? Probably a very big role, I suspect, if the last couple of years or anything to go by. We saw that when Theresa May was still Prime Minister, going to the, the council meetings, uh, it was Macron who was always reported as, as playing sort of hardball on, on, on part of the EU. I guess my my reflection on these past few years is that so much of this comes down to the personal dynamics between the leaders, and quite often that is impossible to read. It was often said to me by people much closer to the action at that level, if you like, than I ever was, that you know, sometimes you literally wouldn't know how things were going to play out until some of the leaders were in the room on their own in their bilateral meetings, so not even round the big table with the, you know, the 28 leaders. So... Ultimately, the success of this uh, and what happens will come down to the, the one-to-one relationships that Boris Johnson can can cast with the other leaders. Mm. And I think it's worth mentioning as well that Theresa May, in a weird way, had a bit of an advantage that was, you know, A, the fact that she'd campaigned, uh, campaign, um, in quotation marks here, for Remain. At least, you know, had been on the Remain side, but also, for most of it, did not have a majority. So she could... You know, she could uh, she could talk to people in Brussels and to European leaders and say, "Listen, you know, if you give me that thing, you know, I'll never get it through my parliament. You know, those people won't agree. Those people won't agree. Like, you've got to work with me here, so I can bring something back that you know, hopefully, can pass through my MPs." Um, Boris doesn't have that. Mm. You know, Boris mm. won an election on an overwhelming mandate. Boris was one of the main people in the Vote Leave campaign. So I think that you know, any. I don't know, I feel like kindness is probably the wrong word, but I suppose patience from the European side towards Theresa May is not, you know, good faith, I suppose, is not probably going to be something they're ready to spend on Boris Johnson as well. Because, you know, the idea is actually, you know, you've been working on this, thinking about this, you've made this happen. 
uh, years ago. So actually, you know, just tell us what you want. And then we may, you know, not, not even necessarily play hardball, but at least say, OK, well, this is what we, we want. We expect you to know precisely what you want and make the case for it. Marie, just to wrap this up, um, you know, you've lived in the UK for many years now. You can kind of see home from both sides now. I mean, you've described how... French policies is kind of trapped in this limbo between, you know, establishment and the, the the kind of the impulse to knock that establishment down somehow by what by whatever means. What for you as a French person? What is what? What are the big issues facing France that that France is not engaging with? Where should all that energy be going as opposed to setting fire to things in the Champs Elysees? Well, I suppose. I mean, I, I really don't want to go for a boring answer. Um, However, I think France has similar problems to other countries in that, you know, to an extent, crumbling sort of like public healthcare in a system, you know, that's not really working. Most um, of my family are healthcare professionals. So, you know, it is something I hear um, about at the dinner table whenever I'm back for Christmas every year without fault. Um, No stuff like that. I think, you know, unemployment does remain relatively high. But again, you know, and I think there's no unique set of problems for France because we do live in quite a globalised um, world now. So, you know, we don't quite have zero hour contracts in France, but there is still precarious un- uh, employment, kind of having to partake in the gig economy and so on. So I think, yeah, like, it's just, I'm not sure, you know, France is currently really ready for the future and ready for, you know, the future of work, automation, etc. So it does need to be looking forward, which I'm not entirely certain it's doing currently. So it's just like here then? Well, yeah. It's exactly like here. It is. Oh God, the poor French. Still in the European Union now. That's true. There is that. <laughs> Now, it's a little bit later. He's fought his way here in the teeth of public transport terrorists. It's Philippe Beauclair, football journalist, biographer of Eric Cantona, Thierry Henry and Tony Blair, all the greats. And then his parallel life, the L Records recording artist, Louis Philippe, creator of Couture Indie Pop. Hello, Philippe. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. Thank, Thank you, you for making much. your way here. here. Before we crack on, can you calm my nerves and give me some reassurance that Liverpool are going to go through against Atletico Madrid tonight, this uh, Wednesday? I, 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 I do think so. I've been through a few um, Anfield nights with Klopp. Uh, over the past couple of years, and uh, I think the atmosphere as well will play a huge role. And to be honest, I, I know it's not, it's not a knife's edge because if Atletico score one, yes, yes, you've got to score. This is true. Score three, but uh, well, you're the expert. Confident. So if you're feeling confident, that's good enough for me. So after a decade, which has seen endless amounts of money poured into football, some legally, some not so legally, could the game be on the cusp of change? The leadership of FIFA has completely changed. Fishy decisions on major tournaments such as the World Cups in Russia and Qatar are looking possibly less likely. And at the Anglo-European level, giants like Barcelona and Man City are teetering while Man United, Chelsea and Arsenal are still works in progress. Philip, is the game on the cusp of change? You've done a lot of work on this corruption stuff. I, I, and I still do. Um, uh, I'm actually involved in uh, two investigations at the moment, um, which would be, which obviously I can't talk about. But I would say that um, it's on, on the cusp of change or a cusp of a complete collapse, I must say. Um, mm. In terms of governance, we certainly, I don't think, have made any uh, improvements or progress since the uh, 2015 arrests at the, the Borolak, the big changes at the top of the game at FIFA. And the regime, which is the new regime, which is in place for me is uh, in many ways more open to criticism than the old one uh, in as much they're not so much in tow with uh, what used to be the old networks of influence and sometimes corruption uh, I think now it's a global thing with global actors mm. um, and that, which is creating huge problems in terms of governance uh, it's still as corrupt as it's ever been and probably I would say probably more corrupt today uh, than in it's ever been in what respect is it more corrupt then because we, we I were... think the corruption as as uh, the dimension has changed. Mm. It's the amount of money, basically. If you increase the amount of money which is in mm. the game, you increase the, the potential for corruption. Um, the money which has come into the game is dirty money. 
um, I, I was talking to uh, uh, a guy from Interpol about three years ago uh, about the uh, dirty money going, going into football. And he said, well, we, we estimate that at least 25% of the money in football is dirty. And it's probably an underestimate. So when you say dirty money, exactly what kind of dirty money are we talking about? Are we talking about uh, opaque, corrupt states? Are we talking about actual crime money? Uh, we're talking, I mean, if we look at the things in the global, you know, in the global way, which we should, it's a global game. Uh, yes, we do have typical criminal money, as in money laundering, people who are involved in very unsavory activities. Um, we also have dirty money, could also be dirty political money. Yeah. And the fact that we now have football becoming uh, a playground, and more than that, it's almost like a theatre of war for, for states, nation states, directly or indirectly, which in turn have got in turn have got also a big influence in the way the game uh, is is managed and is you know we've had a recent example actually which I will take uh, which is a, a lot of the tension at the moment between UEFA so the European body and FIFA the global body is is about competitions um, fans fear the arrival of a super league and so forth but in fact what is going on already is that we are seeing both promoting um, competitions or changes in competition which will only benefit the super elite. Mm. For example, UEFA is now talking about creating a tournament in the summer, which would be rivaling the uh, friendly tournaments which we used to have in the US, for example, or in Southeast Asia. And then FIFA uh, is the creation of the of the Club World Cup and mm. the expansion of that to 24 teams as soon as 2021. And, and you know, nothing is yet written in stone yet, but... But this competition, and I have to doff my cap to my friend Tarek Panja of the, of the New York Times, when he, he tried to find out exactly how this competition would be financed, he found out that the bank that was supposed, SoftBank, the Japanese bank, that was supposed to bring in you know, the, the, the people who would bring the $25 billion, uh, which you know, we're talking about, was in fact a nation state, and actually Saudi Arabia, allegedly. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was denied by, um, not refuted, but denied mm -hmm. by, by, by FIFA. And, um, but we see money coming from, from states which honestly do not necessarily have the best record in terms of human rights, uh, or in term, I mean, both at home and abroad. And um, we see the game being colonized by that. Uh, we've moved to the oligarchs and the multi-billionaires, multi and we've moved to yet to another dimension, which is uh, equity funds, but also nation states. Right. So the more you have money like this, the more money is at stake. And the more money is at stake, of course, the more um, avenues there are open for corruption. And I should mention as well the fact that we have got as the main purveyor of money to football at the moment, in a more general sense, is gambling. And the money that goes into that is very dirty money. It's a completely unregulated um, industry, maybe not in the UK, but elsewhere, particularly in China and the Philippines, the Philippines being the nexus of, of betting. Right. Now, a lot of this is going to come into focus in, in the Qatar World Cup. The world was just about able to hold its nose with the Russian World Cup, which mm -hmm. went quite well, and everybody was able to turn their yeah, noses yeah. away from the human rights abuses in Russia. Qatar, the World Cup is already literally killing people in the construction. Is the world going to be able to hold its nose? Uh, I think the world has held up its nose already. Mm. People are taking part in um, qualifiers. People are making plans. Uh, the international calendar has been reshaped to accommodate a, a winter or autumn winter uh, World Cup. Um, but again, you know, it's not, it's, it's not just um, Qatar. Um, you have to think of the, that. Uh, it, it's also... Um, we're looking at we're looking at China for as well, which has not exactly got the 
best human rights record. China becoming an absolutely crucial part of, of the football industry in terms of organizing competitions and probably welcoming the, the World Cup in, in not too long, mm. 2030, for example, or 2034. Right. So the world will hold up its nose because, unfortunately, uh, we football fans were used to, maybe things are changing a bit, we used to um, just look at our own team, yeah. um, basically not looking around because we knew that if we looked around, it might not yeah. be that great, really. We might see things we don't want to see and we're in denial. I mean, as a football fan, I, I kind of, I couldn't bear the Russia World Cup. Mm-hmm. I watched a couple of games, not with my usual enthusiasm, because I just thought, you know, how, how far can you push this? What are you willing to ignore? And Qatar seems to be, you're willing to ignore not just well-attested yeah. bribery and, and corruption, but also a human rights regime that is, you know, a prime but, but, example of where you should not be legitimizing a, a regime. Uh, the argument against that will be to say that, um, um, and actually it's an argument which was done in, made in Qatar, interestingly enough, mm. um, by some people who said this is going to bring undue attention to us, to what we do. It's not quite right. the way. Well, and there, not everybody was in favor of, of welcoming the the World Cup in Qatar, not at all. I mean, the, the Doha Chamber of Commerce in particular was not that keen, as I understand mm. it. Uh, and you could say that, well, by bringing the... Uh, we've never talked as much about Qatar and the situation of human rights mm-hmm. uh, since we've actually gone, um, decided to go there in 2022. So it's, it's, it's a very strange balancing act. Yeah. What is also interesting, though, is that if you, ha- if you have a look at what happened uh, in football grounds last weekend in Germany you will have seen that uh, a number of uh, ultras groups have decided to make a focus on, on, on Qatar and the World Cup. By the ultras, you mean the extremely politicised, usually far right, but occasionally... The, in Germany, a lot of them are left, left and far yeah. left and radical. Uh, but there were a number of uh, placards uh, you know, in, in, in the crowd saying, you know, blood money from Qatar and so forth. So there is yeah. an awareness, a growing awareness in some parts of the, you know, the supporters groups that this is not right. Stepping down from the kind of nation-state, multi-trillionaire oligarch level to the mere common or garden billionaire level okay. and the club level, the European level. I mean, the big story lately was Manchester City's uh, suspension from the Champions League, their ban for breaking financial fair play rules. The, the club is treating these, um, these, these charges with, with lofty disdain mm-hmm. and it's been a real see-you-in-court approach. Do, Very do, much so. Well, firstly, do you think it's going to stick? Is the band going to stick? And secondly, do you think, do you see a change in the ability of extremely wealthy individuals or extremely uh, wealthy organisations to finance a club like Manchester City? To start with the case itself, I mean, Manchester City have decided to fight their case very hard. They've taken on some very big names in the legal world. Uh, UEFA certainly are seeing that, I would imagine, as a, uh, a test for the solidity of FFP, financial fair play. You can imagine as far as they were concerned, if um, Manchester City uh, were able to crush uh, this decision, it would be an absolute disaster for, for UEFA and for financial fair play as, as, a, as a rule. So which way is going to go? I do think that uh, Cass will... F- I mean, this is purely... You know, I'm not saying it's going to happen. Sports, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying this is what's going to happen. I think we should have a decision fairly swiftly, uh, which means by the end of May. That would be my guess. Mm-hmm. And my other guess would be that the UFS case is, will be strong enough in terms of the way it has been argued for Cass not to found, find in favour of Manchester City. I mean, you have got to think in the past as well. 
Manchester City, contrary to some, what some people are thinking or have been saying, are not singled out. Mm. Other clubs have been uh, also on the receiving end of, of the... And big clubs, I mean, actually a, a bigger club than Manchester City, i.e. Milan, I say historically a bigger club than Manchester City, even if they have their primes these days, they've been suspended uh, from European competitions and after collaborating with the inquiry. So if if, uh, if City's appeal fails, what other clubs do you think are in uh, are at risk of falling foul of FPP? Um, there is, I mean, there are, there are some fears in France uh, about Marseille. It's a crazy club. It's a crazy city. I love the club. I love the city. But I have to say the finances are, uh, I would say, they, they're really, really pushing it in terms of losses and things like that. They have to constantly put money in. And where this money comes from and how they're hoping to get this money back is beyond me. Yeah. So... Other clubs will, will fall foul uh, of, of, of these. When exactly, I can't tell you. But there are, you know, uh, and, and we have to remember as well that financial fair play, UEFA financial fair play, only extends to those clubs which are involved in European competitions. Mm. If we're looking at financial fair play in other, you know, because other competitions have got their own regulations. If I look at the situation in the championship in England, I do not think it is viable and sustainable. And I think that we're going to see an awful lot more clubs falling by the wayside. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody you think is particularly in the... I think Charlton is in, pro- uh, is in trouble at the moment. Uh, I think there are loads of questions about so many other clubs whose finances are simply not sustainable. I mean, you cannot spend 120% of your turnover on wages. You can't. So are there any kind of bright sides or reasons to be cheerful for the football fan going forward? Cheerful, I don't know. Um, cautiously optimistic in the longer term, perhaps, precisely because the awareness is growing, uh, because what we call the supporterism, supporterism is growing throughout Europe in particular, um, because we also see clubs which do not necessarily follow the, the same path and are well run. Uh, also, um, because the game itself, I think, is, is strong enough to withstand the uh, the abuse and that it is uh, uh, unfortunately subjected to these days. So I remain cautiously optimistic. Just before we, we move on, ironically, the next European Championships, if they take place, will be hosted across Europe, the EU and, and beyond, uh, mm-hmm. including Britain. Should be a great celebration of the European spirit, shouldn't it? We left, a, we left the EU at exactly the wrong time. <laughs> Should be Could be interesting, yeah. especially as uh, Wembley being the you know, the centrepiece of the competitions because both semi-finals and the finals and final, should the tournament take place when it is supposed to take place, uh, will be played at uh, the home of English football. So, yes, it is It is rather, uh, people would say, ironical. I think it's rather sad. Anyway, it was a crazy idea to start with uh, and it's looking crazier by the day <laughs> at the moment, to be honest. I think there might be a, quite a bit of rejigging done between the before the competition starts in Rome. Sounds like a great place to start a competition, particularly right now. Yeah, absolutely. We've come to the end of the podcast and we're using a time machine to bring our panel back for their escape routes from politics. Every week we ask what music, events, TV, books or even other podcasts will help them forget the recession and disease-stricken 2020s this week. Marie, what's your mental escape pod from politics at the moment? I'd recommend, so I've actually, I'm going to slightly cheat because I've already finished it, but it was really enjoyable. Uh, There's a show called uh, La Casa de las Flores... Uh, on Netflix, which is uh, from Mexico, has got two seasons, and it's basically a telenovela, but for the kind of millennial generation, and it's incredibly fun because it's you know it's got all the telenovela stuff of you know over the top drama, and you know every episode has about seventeen cliffhangers in it, but also in a way that's sort of done in a really yeah, I suppose it's all that like very very socially liberal and woke, um, and really really funny. 
Um, so yes, I'd recommend that. You know, it could not be further. What, what's it actually about? What happens? Oh, it's oh no, it's, it's a classic trope of like this really rich uh, and posh family in Mexico, and the family seems perfect, but behind closed doors, you know, the truth is different, and everything unravels in the very first episode when the husband's, uh, the patriarch's mistress, hangs herself in the flower shop. Um, that's how it starts. So I'll let you imagine, you know, how bonkers it gets. So it's, and it's brilliant fun. It's a pretty kind of low-key start and then yeah. just kind of low-keys <laughs> it along from there. What's it called again? Uh, La Casa de las Flores, the House of Flowers. Nice. It's got subtitles. Well, I would hope so, yes. Rory, how about you? To escape, I've been doing lots of cooking, oh, yes. actually. Uh, and I may or may not be putting little bits and pieces on my Instagram <laughs> in competition with other uh, people who appear on this podcast from time to time. Am I allowed to mention, I don't think it's a rival podcast, but the one I've really enjoyed listening to, I've had a bit of time these past few weeks, I've really got into the Peter Crouch podcast. Oh, right. It's a really fun, interesting sort of look behind the scenes of football. Uh, and They have this thing, pass the pod, where you have to pass the pod on to someone else. So I'm here passing the Peter Crouch pod on to well, you will guys. will he pass our pod on to other people? With well, that's what I'm hoping. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. trying to negotiate here. And, and uh, yeah, maybe we'll, right. get, maybe we'll get some reciprocal deal with them. Come on, Crouchy. And now, using the time machine, here's Philip O'Claire with his escape route. Yeah, hello, it's Philip O'Claire. My, my escape route is uh, mostly literature. Uh, I'm literally devouring Japanese literature at the moment, and uh, obviously, I, I finally do it. I've gone beyond Tanizaki and uh, and Akutagawa and people like that into uh, lesser known, perhaps, writers. Who would you recommend? Well, I would say actually start with Tanizaki. <laughs> yeah. Which one? I think the absolute masterpiece is the Makioka Sisters. Um, which for me is one of the greatest novels of all time. Um, and then go to another absolute timeless masterpiece, which is I Am a Cat, which is one of the funniest, funniest novels you'll ever read. And as well, one of the most uh, acute and accurate depiction of uh, the silliness of humanity. That's one you can find on Amazon. I Am a Cat. Yes. That was Philip O'Claire. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thanks to our panel, Rory Palmer. What's up next then is your capacity as a retired MEP looking for the next thing? Retired? I'm 38 years old. I'm a little bit, uh, uh, not quite retired. Recovering MEP. Recovering, certainly recovering. What's next? A little bit of writing. I'm publishing a few blogs in the next few weeks on life in the European Parliament over the past two years. Mm, very good. And Marie Lacan, how about you? What are you up to next? Uh, well, actually, after this, well, t- t- tomorrow, you know, d- day after recording, I'm off to Whitstable for a few days. I was meant to go to Shanghai, then that got cancelled. Uh, so to make myself feel better, I booked myself a week in northern Italy, uh, five days before the outbreak started there. So I'm doing what I'd like to think of as a very Brexit holiday, which is three days by the solid British seaside. If you're listening in Whitstable, then there's a pattern emerging here. You should probably lock your doors and windows and, uh, and they're self-isolate. <laughs> uh, Marie's coming. Thank you both for coming in. And thanks to Philip O'Claire as well. Remember, the Bunker versus Romaniacs, Thursday, 2nd of April. Tickets on sale at leicestersquaretheatre.com. We'll be back next week. Subscribe to The Bunker on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Bunker underscore pod. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. The Bunker was presented and produced by Andrew Harrison with Philippe O'Claire, Marie Leconte and Rory Palmer. Audio production was by me, Robin Lieber. Script and assistant production by Jacob Archibald. Theme tune was from Kenny Dickinson and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.